0: I would say, like, you know, be kind to of yourself. Stop worrying about the future so much. You know, the the thing that I've realised is the thing that you worry about the most is not the thing that will come and bite you in the arse. It'll be on a Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock when you're not worrying about anything in the world, you get a phone call and it will change your life.
1: You have found the Thinking Mind podcast.
2: Today we have with us arguably one of the UK's best known doctors, Dr Alex George. Dr George is a medical NHS doctor well known for featuring on Love Island in 2018. Following the show, Alex has become a leading voice in mental health and uses his platform to make health and medicine more accessible to millennials and beyond. Dr Alex is the UK government's first youth mental health ambassador. He launched a campaign requesting the UK prioritise mental health amongst children and adolescents. He's also written a book, Live Well Every Day, with the intention of helping people achieve their best health and lifelong well-being.
0: Hey, hi, hi, hi! Three of you, three plus one. <laughs> yes, You've got yes.
2: The full, the full team. I'm, I'm Alex. Nice to meet you. That's easy,
0: Alex and Alex. Perfect.
2: And my lovely co-host, Rebecca.
0: I'm Rebecca,
3: nice to meet you, Alex.
0: And Anya. Yeah, thanks so much for for asking me. It's a sunny day here. We're not too far away. I'm in South London as well, so it's a nice part of the world, and it's nice and warm. So great to have a chat with you.
2: Excellent. There's so much. There's so much to talk about. Obviously, your career until this point has been so multifaceted. You've trained as a doctor. You worked in A and E. You're on reality TV. Now you're working as a mental health ambassador what's it like looking back on all that it must be does it seem planned out to you or does it seem more serendipitous what's it like to look back in in retrospect
0: um uh, yeah it's i try not to look back too much um i think for for many different reasons um i think sometimes you look back and you spend too much time reflecting on on life you you think about you know the turnings or the opportunities not taken or you think oh gosh should i get this right or what have i done (laughs) <laughs> could easily come up to your mind. and so you've got to be a bit careful yeah a bit careful thinking too much but you know when i was younger i never really had until i was about 13 14 never had like an idea that i wanted to go and do medicine and you know my the reason i went into that career was because i watched programs like 24 hours in a and e or the equivalent of what was on then um you know city hospital i think it was back and back back then and I kind of loved the idea of like working like, in a kind of fast-paced environment, you know, kind of dealing with car accidents, cardiac arrest, all these kind of things. And, you know, to times mental health was nothing to do with, m- not even at all in my thoughts at that point. I didn't know what it was, to be honest, which is a point maybe we'll come on to it later. Um, and... The first time I probably really thought about mental health uh, and and this career was actually probably at the end of the university. But um, but anyway, you know, I, I watched those kind of shows and I thought, well, I like meds, I like uh, science, I like people, I like the idea of adrenaline. Let's consider a career like this. And uh, my parents, my family are not not medics, um, so I didn't really have that kind of experience to draw it on, draw upon. But I thought, why not? Um, applied to med school, failed again first time, I missed out so like, I. two marks in. Did you miss out first time? It's, yeah. it's, good, it's good to have failure. And I, when you say about reflecting, one of the things I reflect on in my life is, you know, you learn far more from your failures than you do successes. success. In fact, failure is your friend. I'm a big believer in that. And uh, you know, although at the time when I opened my results and I, did, I missed out by two marks, I can tell you that I, failure wasn't my friend at that time. But, um, you know, that you learn that lesson, I think, in, you know, in, in the times where, you know, life is challenging you is when you kind of get tested and you learn about yourself. Uh, and you also learn that failure isn't that bad. I mean, most of the things we worry about in life are not that bad. You know, bad things are like death, dying, losing loved ones. You, you know, losing your home, being in Ukraine in the middle of a war. These are bad things in life. And a lot of the times, the things that we think are so bad, particularly at a young age, because we've not been exposed to much badness in life, they seem really painful. But you get through them, and uh, you know, I, I kind of went, well, I still want to do this, and. Let's let's sort out my coursework, which is moderated down. Let's sort that out, reapply, and I got another place. And you know, going to med school, I think that really built that kind of confidence in me to push myself because naturally, I'm very introverted as a person. I thought, I'm push myself." And you know, really coming on to the other things that have happened, it, it's it, it, life kind of shapes you, I think, in your experiences. And I lost a very good friend of mine in second. Uh, well, a well, very good friend of mine was diagnosed uh, with uh, acute myeloid leukemia in second year of med school, and that was a huge shock because the first time someone around me was really sick and she went through rounds of chemo, she had bone marrow transplant, she went through hell I'd say you know leukemia treatments are nuclear aren't they, it's nuclear chemotherapy and you know she was so brave, she did exams in isolation you know it, it was just unbelievable really and when she came out you know she first thing she did was run a marathon to raise, raise money for leukemia and all this and then and then sadly she got it came back She had a, recur- a recurrence of disease and she was given like two weeks to live and at that time when I kind of said goodbye to her she said to me Alex you're someone who is uh, introverted and sometimes and sometimes you you know you do shy away a little bit from from just pushing yourself like you're going outside you outside your comfort zone and she said you know say yes to things give things a go like I'm at this time in my life now where I I have all this stuff I want to do but I can't and when uh, Love Island approached and said, do you want to go on this show? I was like, no way. And one of my consultants was like, come on, a consultant Lewis. I was like, come on, come on, go and do an interview. And it was one of those moments where I genuinely, as cheesy it sounds. I was like, what would Freya say? And I was like, oh, go on, I'll go for it then. And, and it just happened. And then when you come out of that show, you've got a question, you know, and you've got to ask yourself, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to clubs and do PAs, sell Boohoo products, you know, all this kind of stuff, or do I stick to what I know? And it was scary because imagine at the time when I came out, there's only a handful of doctors online. I had the second or third biggest following in the world amongst medics. It's quite a scary thing to kind of deal with. You, know, no one, you don't get trained for that at med school. You
3: know? yeah, yeah. Um,
0: uh, although med school, they probably wouldn't advise you to go on Love Island. Be fair. <laughs> but Anyway, you came out of this situation. You know, I was like, oh, right. So what do I do with this now? And, uh, and I thought, well, like, first of all, I'll go back to Amy because of what I know. And secondly, I'll just kind of talk about things I care about on my platform. And I, I try I, I try not to plan too much in life. I want to just kind of go with the flow. And I think if you try and have too rigid a kind of mindset of where you want to go, I think you might miss opportunities. You kind of, it, you then, it might also be disappointed about where you end up. Like I kind of treat, try and take each day that comes. I have goals within my role and what I'm doing now, but I don't, I try not to be too fixed with that. The world keeps changing. I mean, Six months ago, would you have said we'd had a war, a, another world, a, well, kind of a world war on our continent? We wouldn't, would be. A couple of years ago, would you say there's a pandemic, like we'd ever live through a pandemic? You wouldn't. So I think that flexibility of mindset, and that's why I go back to what I said at first, I think not being too reflective and looking back too much is important. And equally, not looking at the future and fearing too much, because who knows what's going to happen?
2: You seem quite grounded and down to earth, and I suppose people have had your experiences It's so easy to get swept up by it. And I imagine it's so, Mm -hmm. so seductive. We live in a time where everyone wants to be famous. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone has this dream. But when you look at famous people and the things they go through, I'm thinking about people like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, for instance. Now you see the toll that decades of fame have have taken on them. What was it like for you? Because I imagine Love Island was quite a enclosed environment right he didn't Mm. have contact with the outside world Mm. so even though on some level you knew you were being watched i suppose it wasn't that it wasn't that obvious it wasn't that overt but then you come out and all of a sudden i remember what it was like in 2018 Mm. everyone was watching that show i was watching that show it was nuts
0: oh god what was it like
2: (laughs) (laughs) i was hoping you hadn't seen it what was it like coming out you know that i was incredibly
0: naive going in I think I was very naive. The, the year where I went in, it wasn't that big the year before. There's a couple, it wasn't that big. It really, I, I went on honestly and I said to the consultants, look, because I did a JCF year, did my FNF2, did a JCF year. I finished my JCF at that time. And I said, look, I'll be away for a couple of weeks, then I'll come back and work it out. I'll be away two weeks. And I thought, you know, I'll come out. It's a lovely holiday of two weeks. It'll be a laugh and I'll come back. I didn't think I was going to be on there for the whole show or I'd come out with, millions of followers I and mean, it didn't have an agent it was the only personal one on there without an agent but everyone was going oh Alex how many followers do you have they'd say oh like 50,000 I've got 200 200 they're like oh 200,000 I was like no I've got 200
1: 200
0: <laughs> <laughs> and they, thought, they were like are you serious and I was like yeah I, I and I was like no I, I don't have that so when it came out it was an absolute shock it was a real shock it, it, fame it, I don't know how young people like said, bear in mind I wasn't that young when I'm 27 and I'm 31 now I, I wasn't that young going on. there. I'd, I'd, done my, I'd sweated in A&E, you know, we're like you guys, we've done the work, we've lived in the real world, we've seen bad stuff, we knew what stress was. But this was a different kind of stress, having your life, you know, coming out and seeing people slate you, there's people saying stuff with my skin. Now I was on Rakuten at the time, and people are slating me for being red, which obviously went on that it's very difficult you know i had people laying into me about my my personality saying oh, i was boring i mean there's all kind of things that people write and that's the first time i'd ever you know as medics we don't go in the public eye we don't we're just not in that space all of a sudden you know it was difficult and and, and that's why the biggest thing about that saying he was very very important but things you know I, i'm a big believer that what you put out there in the world is what, what eventually comes back to you. So if you put positive out there, you focus on things you care about, you'll attract an audience that care about it. You know, my following now is the vast majority of my following is 25 to 45, 60, 70% of them. The other chunk is then under 25s an and 18-year-olds, etc., and maybe slightly younger. But the kind of love island audience who are not interested in mental health and health and well-being, the things I am, have kind of gone and it's kind of I've now got this quite nice audience who genuinely I think care about this. So it takes time and uh there was a huge risk. I mean, when I came out, I could have earned ten grand a night going to a club, uh, all these big deals and stuff. I was I was I, I didn't have I wouldn't earn very much money in the first year. It was real sweat because no you weren't paid anything to go on a show. I had no pay obviously because of way I finished my contract. And I came out and I was saying no to all these deals. It was stressful. It was a risk because ultimately I could have ended up in financial difficulty. Uh, Unfortunately, that hasn't happened, but you know, there was a real, it was a risk, but I'm I'm glad I took that decision because I'm a big believer. You've got to stick to what you what you what you what you enjoy and what you believe in life. And the other thing I think is very important. And I think for medics, and you're listening, is that uh, worry a little bit less about the hierarchical pressures. I think of medicine. You know, I had medics who were very critical of me when I came out. I was very well aware that they were a good pocket were supportive. I I think if you did a poll of people that were supportive against me now, I think that'd probably be a little bit different, perhaps to what it was, which is fair because people probably thought, "What's he going to do now? He's going to be this person. going be Everyone, he's going to pretend to be some kind of consultant doing all this kind of stuff." and I say true to myself. I think I've never pretended to be any more than what I am, and I just campaign. And so I think there's a very different viewpoint, and I hope I've inspired other medics not to go. I'm not to go on arts TV, but I think if you have a passion outside of medicine, that's fine. I think I think in fact, if you have passions outside of medicine, it enhances your ability to be a good doctor. I believe that to be true. And also, not only that, you know, at times we're seeing you know, between 70, 80 percent of surgeons burnt out, really high levels of burnout amongst nurses, uh, GPs leading the profession. We need to encourage people to have a life outside and ways in which to manage their self-care. You know, us doctors are among the worst, really, at looking after ourselves. I only had to look around, look at my own habits as an F1, F2 and stuff and think about what I was getting up to, to realise we're not always the best.
2: Yeah, I like what you said about remaining kind of grounded in your own reality. And I think that really applies to everyone. You know, you obviously had this extreme case of it because you were thrust into the spotlight. But really, I think the struggle that I see most of us having is all of the distractions, be it other people, the media, popular culture, even sometimes our own distracting thoughts, our own distracting emotions are all taking us away from our own value system you know one of the things you can do with good psychotherapy in the process of self-discovery is actually discover like you said what do you actually care about you know in life and what do you want to move towards and then the more you cultivate that it's such a reliable compass because it's like it's such a good personal you know north star well it's just
0: developing that you know that developing I talk about when I go to school it's like the first stage before you think about well-being or whether you're struggling or where you're at is having self-awareness without self-awareness you, you're not going anywhere without self-awareness you can't develop purpose you know and so it's that having starting point it's something I've had to learn over the years is kind of you know and I guess it's that point around emotional literacy as well as being able to kind of vocalize and explain that position and you know and that's that's something when I go back to what I said you know I did if you asked me when I was at school what is mental health I'd have said Probably, I'd have probably just like come up with depression, even an a level depression. Maybe, uh, you know, and and I certainly wouldn't have come up with positive uh, connotations with mental health. You know, if you say, I always find it interesting. If you say to a group of people, you know, what do you think of when you say physical health? They'll say like Joe Wicks, running, exercise, outdoor, whatever. They might say heart attack, a few things like this. But very positive words come with a physical health. It's kind of like a co- positive connotation when you say mental health. It's often very negative kind of words and phrases. So I think it's. And I think that's a very interesting point. And it's kind of thinking, you know, when teaching self-awareness, is looking for the kind of, you know, what, what, what do you feel inside in terms of like positively, negatively? What, what are your emotions? Naming them. And then when it comes to, as you say, that like kind of, you know, finding that purpose, it's, it's, it's working out what makes you really tick. It's that connection. I always think it's that you're trying to connect. Like your, what are your experiences in life that shaped you? What is your skill set? And what actually excites you? And those kind of intersections should be kind of your you know your direction but the problem is for a lot of young people now as we live in a world of hyper connectivity in a digital space but there's a huge disconnect in the human connection and uh, you know if you think people are spending between two and four hours a day on social media that's two or four hours a day we were probably playing in the parks outside running around I knew I was building tree houses and stuff I literally like out with my mates messing around all the time I look at my younger brother who you know god bless him passed away he he was spending his teenage years sat on xbox and online never hanging out with mates you know it was really really like and he was like, oh it's fine but we're we're, we're chatting on we'll this and, and uh, you're just living this like dopamine space of just like hits and likes and like chatting online and there's not like a meaningful connection. I think it's very hard to be like grounded with yourself if you're just hyper-connected in this space.
2: Yeah, it's like all the meaningful activities that we get, we can get in real life, like socialising with friends, connecting with family, even things like dating. And even video games are particularly insidious because video games give you this illusion of like, I'm making progress and getting better at something. But then you switch off your PlayStation and you're just like a bit, you're just a bit tired and a bit sweaty and you haven't actually like learned anything. You what do you made... do,
0: What kind of games are you playing? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of games do you play? I used mean, to, I used to, you I used... Up on the wrong site there, my
2: friend. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to play a lot of video games when I was younger, but at some point I realised it's like the illusion of progress without any progress. And if you choose to see life in a more game-like way, it becomes a lot more exciting um, because it gives you that kind of, it gives you the same pleasure, but you're actually making real, real tangible progress, you know
0: the other problem with kind of this connected state is that people are losing the ability to be alone obviously loneliness is mental health awareness Week, and uh, you know as you guys know like being alone is a state that you can be very comfortable with it's, it might be physically alone you know and you're kind of that's the opportunity for self-care for recharging all these different things but you know this loneliness is driven by that lack of you know the disparity between your expected uh level of social connection human connection in quality and quantity versus that what you're actually receiving and and I think so many people have just lost that ability to just kind of be comfortable alone. And then when they're trying to connect with people, it's often through this digital space or gaming or whatever it is, and they're not therefore for satisfying yeah. enough quality or quantity and or both of genuine, uh, you know, human connection. And, and I guess the worry is moving forward is like, how much is that with the you know the, an epidemic of loneliness that we see amongst young people now, what does that foster for the future in terms of not only are people looking after themselves and making good connections, but we're talking about you know reaching out and asking for help? Are people going to be as adept at doing that if they don't have the kind of social connections or skill sets? You know, a lot of teachers I've been visiting a lot of schools. Teachers have told me the kids are two or three years in terms of social development are two or three years behind. I can imagine they're not able to 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 actually communicate in the way or to, to be able to to be able to understand social cues in the way that they would have done because they've not been in the environment at school so you've got like kids at 12 13 that are kind of like 9 or 10 in terms of their ability to communicate with each other
2: yeah social skills are actually really hard like if you had to write a book to someone who's to an alien or something this is how humans interact with each other socially it would be like a long and complicated book if you want someone to like you you have to make certain proactive steps but you can't be too enthusiastic you can't be too keen and it's a delicate balance there's always a dynamic it sounds like
0: a the game theory yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't that, that book that everyone's reading game theory that half of clapham read game theory i reckon uh, yeah,
2: we yeah. <laughs> there's so many problems there yeah that's what it looks like uh, yeah. but they're all they're all unwritten they're learned unconsciously when we're young and like you say because we now have this like cheap version of connection it's kind of like the junk food of friendship you know talking to someone on instagram or something like that it's very very cheap calories you know in terms of social contact and, and i think young people really don't realize what they're missing
0: what what are you seeing in terms of you know the you know, younger patients that you're seeing are you seeing that effect of the kind of pandemic on their kind of ability to communicate are you seeing anxiety on the ground being worse the kind of the impact of I guess loneliness is that something that you see
2: I think something I see is that my I'm not a CAM psychiatrist I'm a general adult but I have seen camps patients child and adolescent patients out of hours I see that young people are a lot more fragile and a lot more anxious um, and a lot more I would say sheltered, you know, and I think there's this feedback loop that's happened. You know, uh, there's a researcher, I don't know if you're familiar with him named Jonathan Heights, who's done a lot of research on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He feels helicopter, social media and helicopter parenting in the 90s created this bubble that um, allowed children to be very, very sheltered. And as a result, they're just so much more vulnerable to stress. Rebecca, you see a lot of uh, child and adolescent patients. Have you noticed anything in particular?
3: Well, I'm currently working on a psychiatric intensive care ward for CAM so actually I don't I haven't seen that many in A&E but we do know that the rates have gone up exponentially of kids presenting to A&E. So I don't know exactly, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but we know that it has gone up absolutely Mm -hmm. exponentially, Mm -hmm. um, the presentations to A&E, and we know that they are really, really struggling. That transition of being completely isolated at home and then having to be thrown back into school and the stresses of not being able to do your exams and A-levels, um, yeah, really, really has has been difficult, and especially those who have autism, ASD, have really struggled going yes. from being in their known environment, um, you know, day-to-day life pre-pandemic, and then the pandemic hit, and either... They've, they've actually coped very well in that bubble at home yeah. during the pandemic because that was a secure environment and they've struggled going back to school afterwards, back into the unknown. Or the opposite. During the pandemic, they really struggled because home wasn't a secure environment for them. Um, and then they haven't been able to cope coming back either. So either way, yeah, it's been it's been really, really hard for kids. The
0: other thing we've seen a lot of, of course, is the rise in eating disorders as well amongst amongst young people and it's an interesting theorem because I, I mean a lot of people have kind of hypothesized why that spiked so much in the pandemic I guess ideas around control and is that an element of like you know because the world around us has been completely like that world around them has been completely controlled and that's an element of that then also there's there's a question. Is it because? And I think this is an interesting point. Is it also because of people are spending so much more time on social media? I mean, I think the average time on TikTok was like six to eight hours a day for the under eighteen over over lockdown. So, so what what's that effects that can have? And then one of the things I you know I, I was really vocal about for the pandemic because there's a huge issue on TikTok where they were we're seeing ma- you know three, videos of three four hundred thousand views gla- glorifying self harm, glorifying eating disorders. So. You know, you're seeing this feedback look of perfect images, plus people glorifying eating disorders and self Palm. You know, is it the chicken and the egg? What is the thing that's kind of caused that? And, you know, what are you, are you... Again, Rebecca, are you seeing that on the sharp end as well?
3: I know that eating disorders has also gone up exponentially. I'm not sure of the figures. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think both. And, I mean, I'm not on TikTok. I don't actually know what the TikTok world is like. Um, but I can only... Imagine how difficult it is, and I think, yeah, you can get really sucked in and fed into that. And yeah, I, I don't know for certain, but I'm, yeah, it's definitely concerning going forward. And I, I really feel well, the referrals to
0: CAMS have gone from a thousand a day you've nationally to two thousand a day pre and post pandemic, so it's a huge mm-hmm. rise, yeah. huge so rise. So
2: we have this strange relationship with social media, don't we? You use it, we use it, and we're obviously there's like so much potential for good to come of it but so far maybe because it's new maybe because we're still in, in our adolescence in, in terms of how we use it there's clearly a lot of harm that's resulting from it as well how do you how do you view your relationship with social media and how it could be used you mm. know for bad or for good
0: mm. well it's interesting because I had this conversation with um, Professor Vikram Patel, who's like the, one of the global of like global mental health and it, 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 we were talking about this and you know, there there is many studies that show it's harmful as it is beneficial and vice versa. When you speak to certain individual groups and even those are extreme mental illness, some say, well, it's terrible. Others say, well, it's my form of connectivity. I've got extreme anxiety. I don't feel like I can go connect with people in person. It gives me a sense of connection and purpose. So It's mm-hmm. very hard to pin that point is it good or bad? And I think the better question is how how can we use it for good and how can we negate some of the bad effects? It's not going anywhere. And I have this conversation, I go to schools and so I speak to parents and say, look, the reality is social media is here to stay, not only to stay, it's going to step up and we're going to talk about the metaverse now where we're going to be like on the, the metaverse. I mean, it blows your mind. Uh, you know, you've got, you know, the rise of TikTok, which has been exponential. Most, you know, most, jobs will have some element of social media or digital connection in the future. I mean, a lot of them do already. I mean, look at medicine, we've got apps for GPs. You know, what will that look like in the future? So I think it really is important at schools, and I've been hammering home this point with part of education. We need to be educating children on how to use social media safely, Okay, from a very basic concept, but also know how to utilize it for your creations, your, your things that you enjoy, and also your career. And very importantly, how to protect yourself and how to recognize the harmful effects. So, understanding how algorithms work, understanding that you know, that, you know how to spot signs that people are like editing photos, and maybe how to look out for fake news. Fake news has been a big issue. The Ukraine war, of course, as well as throughout the pandemic, and also things like how to protect yourself from bullying online. You know, one of the biggest issues we have. And part of the reason I launched Don't Face It Alone last year with number 10 and, and Down Reward is because, you know, over half of children surveyed, and this was a survey of many thousand children, over half of those children surveyed had been bullied at any one point online. You know, when I was at school, I was picked on a bit and bullied a bit in school at one point, but I was safe at home. Now kids are actually getting bullied even worse at home. You know, the stuff, you know, you got, um, uh, it often seems to common amongst groups of girls that exclusional likes, are like, so don't like everyone, don't like her photo, don't reply to her, she comments, you know, ignore her. Then you've got that, so you've got the, like direct bullying and indirect, very clever, manipulative ways that people are actually bullying people. It's, you know, I could only imagine the, the kind of effects. so I think it's so important that we kind of teach these young kids because in an ideal world, children should be on social media to the age of like 16. But they're on there from 11, 12. Most children are online by the age of 13. So we've got to go in early and teach them. You know, I use the analogy, you know, would one of us get in a plane and fly a plane without any lessons? We wouldn't, would we? But our phone is more powerful than the rocket that went to the moon. So we need and that, you know, we we need to catch up a little the education side to kind of, you know, kind of really get in there and give kids the the understanding and i, I think if you can teach them and educate them well you know how to look after themselves yeah it's not a perfect solution but it's better i think the other point is as well that i'm very interested on is the online harm bill harms bill and i've been trying to work on this and i've been in a lot of meetings with it and recently met with an mp with a particular idea we have about introducing hashtag edited so at the moment so influencers like myself if i post a brand deal and put hashtag ads. There's transparency that there is. This is an advertisement. You know it's an advertisement. But if you have to, ha- so I, you know, the technology out there. Adobe has technology that can read photos and basically decipher that it's been edited. So if you said to influencers and brands, they had to put a bit hashtag edited, it would hugely discourage them from doing it because no one wants to put that they've edited the photo, really. And that would perhaps help reduce some of that kind of effects of those kind of things that they're that they're seeing. But the other things that we have to um, uh, encourage, well, in fact, enforce is put the onus on TikTok, on Instagram, on these platforms to really, you know, deal with issues. For example, like video, you know, becoming seeing, being seen by 300,000 people showing self-harm. That should be pulled off instantly. These algorithms are clever. They can pull that stuff down very, very quickly. So we need to be forcing these companies to act quicker and take more responsibility about people that use them.
2: Yeah, 100%. I, when listening to what you were saying, I was thinking... In in the psychotherapy world, there's a lot that's made of fantasies, you know, positive and negative fantasies, and how they perpetuate sort of neuroses. We did a, we did a whole episode on it called Reality versus Fantasy, and when you think about it, social media just allows for the perpetuation of that fantasy, and that fantasy could be yeah. I'm not good enough uh, as because I can see all of mm. these people who look more beautiful than me, or have more stuff than me or it could even be like a narcissistic fantasy like look how amazing i am because i have 300 likes or whatever it is you know yeah, yeah. and it's just there's something very healthy about being grounded in reality and social media and i'm, I'm worried about the metaverse to be honest and things along those lines and virtual reality because they just they're so seductive to our brain chemistry powerful. they're so powerful, powerful surely. and they just take you away from what's actually real you know when you think about activities like like activities like playing a musical instrument are great because like a piano won't bullshit you a piano will tell you when you're <laughs> when you're fucking up
0: you know? when you're shit and when you're not yeah yeah if i play it's like if they do, if it doesn't tell me everyone else will yeah Get exactly that piano.
2: or you go on a date with someone you know you're gonna know if it's going well or not there's no there's no there's no, f- there's no fakeness in that what technology allows for the construction of this this um, fake world. But some, something I'm curious about is so, so after Love Island, you've decided that you want to pursue these things that are valuable to you. And, and incidentally, your, your journey reminds me a lot of Chris Williamson, I think, who was also on Love Island. And he has the mm. podcast Modern Wisdom, I'm not sure if you're familiar mm. with him.
0: Uh, Chris Williamson, was he on Love Island?
2: He was, but like I think the original Love Island or oh, like maybe. season I one or something. yeah, 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 But he has this amazing podcast called Modern Wisdom. So for him, it's the pursuit of ideas, right, and, and philosophy. Mm. Um, but what was what your motivation specifically to get involved in mental health rather than public health in general or, mm. or something else?
0: I think, uh, again, I think life leads you in a certain direction. I, I really struggled in the fourth year of med school. And I I basically went from being quite a happy guy that enjoyed my studies, would had a very normal university journey, to uh, basically my fourth year. I, I was based at um, Peninsula Medical School at the time. So it was Exeter, Plymouth, and Truro. And I was doing my fourth year placement down in Truro. And basically, I was isolated away from my friends, my girlfriend at the time. And I went into a, a really weird space where, I, you know, looking back, I had uh, mild to moderate depressions. I stopped having interest in my studies, not sleeping well, wasn't exercising, wasn't getting, uh, getting outside, wasn't kind of making after to see anyone. And I got myself into a real rut. And um, I thought, oh, gosh, I can't speak to med school because they'd be like, you, you can't look after yourself. You can't be a doctor. right? that real fear. I was like, I cannot talk to them. I can't see the GP or report me to med school. Um, and so it kind of got worse. And eventually I, I spoke to my mum. Uh, you know, mums are often good source of advice. And I rung her and she was great. I mean, she's not, I said, not a medic, she works in a bank. And she said, Alex, you're, you're not really doing anything that's conducive with feeling happy or feeling well. I had a bit of like a light bulb moment. I was like, God, she's right. I literally, you know, I'm not doing anything that's really helpful for how I'm feeling. And we had an idea of doing thought of the day every day. We discussed my thoughts and feelings. We'd kind of talk about some of the negative things I was thinking and try and work them out. Um, I agreed to go for a walk every morning. I made a plan for more movements, a bit of exercise. I started cooking my own meals. I went to bed at 10, got up at seven, and I started calling a different friend. I made a rule where I call a different friend every day to chat to them because I wasn't around them. So i chat to them each day. And after about six to eight weeks, I was a completely different person. It really made a huge difference. And the two things I came away thinking about after that was number one, stigma is horrendous because I literally was like, I'm not going to the GP. I would have not gone for anything. Uh, which I think is awful and very sad. And just, secondly, be, just because of the shame, year you my med- uh, Shame and fear, i will be kicked out. Fear of actually being uh, discriminated against because of it. And that's a very, rough, I think medics are very, it's, I speak to a lot of medics who still think they're going to get discriminated, especially in things like surgery or whatever, where it's very like, apply to the next level, apply to the next level. I think, oh, I'm not going to, if there's a, a little bit of weakness in you, they're like, no. So there's a huge, it's really a huge problem. Uh, and I was really worried about that. And I thought that's a real shame that I felt that way. And also, as a fourth year med student, I had never clued to look after myself. I did not appreciate or understand well-being at all. I just like I'd completely got myself in this mess without any kind of awareness. I had lacked that self-awareness. So I looked back and thought, well, why did I not know this stuff at school? Why I was not taught this stuff? I didn't, I wasn't able to even like be aware of myself or what was going on. And then if you fast forward to um I did my Kings year and went on to Lewis and do F2. And, and in F2 I did my A and E placement, which I then stayed on in. And I was actually shocked about how much mental health we see. And what I was really shocked about is not just like, say, you know, we'll see a lot of mental illness that presents, but how much stuff was there that we saw physical illnesses that had an underlying mental health cause. And I'm fascinated by that now. So if you look at, you know, someone comes in with an MI, Okay, you chat this guy he's had diabetes back some uh, years and he did that heart
2: attack for our non-medical <laughs> yes, yes sorry yes sorry that's we're psychiatrists do, you know we don't yes yeah, medical no, times no, kind off of it, go come right
0: off it. Uh, and, uh, come off it So, a yeah, heart attack and he worried you know uh, so they had a heart attack and then you find out that they had diabetes for several years then you dig back and find that they've been overeating for many years to deal with their stress and their overworking and these things and you find out that actually there was at, really at the root of it there was a mental health issue or illness that might have actually propagated physical you know um physical a physical illness so we almost see this heart attack in the front of us without thinking actually what else what has led to this i know what could we have done earlier in that person's life to change that and i look at what how i was in in fourth year, and actually sometimes even now when things are tough i overeat when i'm stressed and the fourth year i was eating terribly was putting on weight i was eating i wasn't giving my body nutritious food at all. and if i'd have done that for 20 years i could end up with a heart attack but the problem was that I had a mental health issue at that time. So when I came out of the show, I, 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 because of my personal experience, because of that, I was really, really keen that we educate people. I actually went straight after the love. I went to 2018 on World Mental Health Day to speak to Theresa May, the number 10, about increasing education at schools. I didn't have the response that I really wanted at that time. Then the pandemic happened and there was obviously everyone's focus on mental health and, you know, my own personal experience, you know, as I said earlier, I lost my brother to suicide without any warning. And, you know, again, he didn't talk to anyone. So one can only assume that it was a significant stigma where he felt he'd rather make a permanent decision or permanent solution. He'd rather take a permanent solution to a temporary problem than, than actually speak to someone about it. OK, so uh, it, 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 to me, it was like, well, I have to do something. And that's why from there. I spoke to anyone that would talk to me and I'm not an expert I'm not you guys are psychiatrists I'm not an expert in mental health but I was like right I've got a big platform let's go and talk to anyone that will listen to me from experts to students to parents to psychiatrists to all these different people and gather what what is going on uh, what, what is the issue here and then I went with you know, kind of all this list of things and did this post on Instagram to speak to the prime minister just to literally tell him this is what I found and you know number 10 reached out and it was it went viral Kind of campaign by accident really and um, they said look let's let's talk one thing led to the other and they said why don't you come and sit not with government i'm not I'm not work for government but in a voluntary role and help you know kind of steer and talk with you know government the nhs charity sectors you know to kind of be that kind of voice i guess and use the platform to a destigmatizing and run campaigns which we've done a lot of but also try and work on things like funding and that's why you know this all of this stuff and all the things i've been doing the last year." has led to my kind of current focus, which is getting early support hubs funded. And I'd, I'd be interested to hear what your opinions are, but from what I hear speaking to Claire Murdoch, head of NHS England with the mental health, Adrian James, you obviously know from, from the Royal College and things. A lot of these experts are in agreement that we have to kind of change this model of provision of health when it comes to mental health in this country. Like It feels to me that CAMs is designed for a certain percentage you know, adult acute services or community services were designed for a certain percentage of people, you know, not for everyone. You know, like I think it year, 100,000 referrals to CAMs were rejected in England. Uh, and that's not clearly because people in CAMs don't care. You know, children, they, they clearly really care. But there's two things, long waiting times, and maybe that's not the best place for them. So should we be moving to a community-based model of support? And again, Vikram Patel has pioneered this really in his work over the years but it's that kind of task sharing model you know where do most men get mental health support it's the barber if you ask most men where, who do they speak most to about the mental? Health? it's not the wife it's not the kids it's the barber it's the same as me i, I probably genuinely talk more to my barber than apart from now that i've got therapy but <laughs> probably talk to my barber a lot more and so i'm excited about early support hubs because the idea of having a place within the community uh, a youth setting led by youth workers with wraparound support the walk-in that referral is very much youth led you're integrating educational and career advice, sexual health support where, um psychological support and, and counseling when needed, but also integrating things in the community, so having uh, sport music, you know all the different things that bring skill sets from that community together and obviously you've got to allow for that to look different in Birmingham to what it will be on the coast, because you might utilise surf therapy or whatever, and then you know, they might bring together some of their culture or whatever to, to kind of do it. But I'm really excited about it, and that's why you know, I wrote to the Prime Minister. i will be campaigning almost, for almost a year with this, uh, with the Coalition for Mental Health, but I'm meeting the Prime Minister next week, actually, to talk to him about this directly after writing to him and calling for them to fund it, really. And, I, and I'm determined, you know, if I can do one thing in my role, it would be to, to get these funded so yeah. i'd be interested to hear what you think about that kind of an early intervention model and that community-based model versus maybe what's traditionally uh, there now
2: i i think it makes lots of sense and the reason why is because i think what psychiatric services are struggling with is we have an old system which as you said was designed for a small percentage of the population so our psychiatric services were designed for the small percentage of the population that have serious major what you'd call classically major mental illness now I think this huge spike in mental health problems that we're seeing is because of a I think a disconnection that many many people are having with the basic things in life which people need to remain mentally healthy things which we took for granted before having a sense of community spending out- time outside having p- having good role models in the community to look up to having positive social influences and a lot of people are growing up in environments deprived of those things they're becoming let's say they're showing what you could call quote-unquote mental health systems and we're trying to jam them into a medical way of mm. looking at yeah. things yeah. and into frontline services in a and e and things along those lines and what i've seen you know my career so far is that clear like mismatch like square peg in a round hole kind of thing mm. so i think the kind of service it's you outline to sounds that. good Yeah. It does because I think there's a there's a kind of I think we can have a tendency to fall into a rabbit hole with something. You build a system that's designed to do something and you just let the system propagate itself and you get to a point where the tail's wagging the dog and it becomes yeah, it becomes this inflated bureaucracy and no one no, we don't go back to first principles i think enough
0: and, and and i think you know the thing that i found and i was dragged down this route because a lot of people make a lot of money so Let's just fund. let's put more money into camps. put more money into camp mm, just feed like, it when you, that that's not necessarily it's not I i'm not for a second saying that i don't think we should be funding it more but we need to make clearly conscious money you need to make a plan you know the biggest part of it that i've heard again and again from like uh, adrian james for example is talking about well if you put money into it, you have to make a plan of how you're going to train new core trainees, how you're going to train the mental athletes. It's making that kind of a workforce plan really as well, not just saying put money into it. But it ultimately, CAMS and, and mental health services and those tertiary services are incredibly expensive. To roll hubs out across England, it'll cost us £250 million, which is pennies compared to traditional services and also you know the economic argument and this is the big part of the conversation we're having with the prime minister is that you know if you look at it the cost of uh, mental illness to the economy each year is between and 100000000000 billion 100 900 billion to the economy which is absolutely mega bucks so if we can invest in grassroots we'll improve community engagement we'll tackle things like loneliness and we can you know help young people before the problem becomes worse. And th- we're not rebuilding or reinventing the wheel here. There are hubs across the country, Area 43 in Wales, uh, Open Door Charity uh, in, in Liverpool that I visited, visited, both them and Wave Project in Scotland. And their success rates are fantastic. The evidence is brilliant. I mean, uh, we took a lot of this from Headspace in Australia, which is different to the app for anyone listening. The Headspace app is not the same as Headspace, the hubs. they rolled it across Australia and in fact, been so successful the government are funding an adult version. And they're, um, they're you know, just for uh, an indication, they're, um their overall results show that the, for those attending their hubs there is a, a on average a, at least a 70% reduction in psychological distress. I know that's a very broad sweep but it's a pretty good measure um, and and it's it, I just think it's it's a really exciting thing to do something that really brings communities together. You know there's one that was set up in North London very recently I visited by the Jewish community and these were these were actually Four or five lads and a couple of girls in their 20s who said, look, there's, the, the rates of anti-Semitic hate has gone up by 400% in the last year. The mental health of a lot of that community isn't great for obvious reasons. What can we do to engage particularly the men in the, in the Jewish community who don't want to talk? So they, well, a lot of Jewish men really enjoy boxing. So what they did is they got a warehouse, got all the money together from the community, put money into the pot. And they renovated this quite small warehouse into a boxing gym. And so what they did, they go and collaborated with mental health professionals in the area and said, so what we'll do, we'll do an hour of free boxing uh, uh, for, for people that turn up. But you do half an hour of well-being teaching before. So you give them that education, mental health first aid. And when they're boxing, then they give put the trainers through mental health first aid to spot when someone's struggling. And if they say something like, do you know, what, it's not a good time at the moment, whatever, they do a little brief kind of chat with them and then plug them into psychological support. And it's been so successful at getting people in the door that would not approach a GP or whatever and get them in there in a way that they've gone for boxing that ends up having not just physical help, but mental health help as well. And I think that's what's exciting is tailoring things to communities to engage people. You know, again, I was at uh, number 10 uh, a week ago and we had, I forget his name, but he's one of the leads in uh, public mental health. And he was talking about how, you know, one of the biggest challenges with men is that men just d- don't come forward. Men, you know, take their own lies before they've actually accessed help. So, you know, and, and and it was interesting. He was actually saying how we need to stop blaming men or making putting the onus on men to come forward and adapt to us. We need to go to them. And I thought that was an interesting point. He's kind of saying that like, these people have been ingrained all their lives not to talk, big boys don't cry, get some balls, whatever, you know, get up whatever get on with life and you're asking them to come forward in a way they're not comfortable let's find ways of engaging them in the way that they are and i thought that was an interesting point to really even the
2: way the way you would engage men is different to women right because they women i think i'm i'm generalizing a bit but women are more inclined to um, get together and actually talk about how they're feeling whereas men need an activity like a shared activity and then as they're doing the activity they're like oh you know things haven't been going so good lately you know
0: it's finding right I mean, there's a brilliant idea and again this uh, that was brought up in this meeting and i thought it's just what, like an like obvious but a great idea that there's um i think it's on the south coast and they call it the workshop i think and they literally have a workshop and they got a load of wood in the workshop with tools and basically the men get together in the area the retired men or men in their 50s often come together and they build stuff and when they build stuff they talk they're having they're doing something creative which is great they're doing something active and then they're talking and again they put they have leaders with that group who kind of again spot someone particularly struggling and have that way of either canceling each other but and talking and have that level of engagement but also you're kind of plugging them in if someone does need that extra bit of support they're using that as a medium to kind of convert that help and I think that I just find that kind of what you exactly said earlier a lot of what we're talking about is basics isn't it all humans need to sleep eat have social connection a sense of purpose a bit of exercise and get outside in natural light I mean again if you're spending two to four hours down your phone sat in your room you're not outside you're not you're not connected with the world you know not connected with nature and that's kids are just losing that so much and it's quite sad
1: there's so much in what you've said that um is just fascinating i hope i hope we can carry on um exploring i guess i was wondering in your work in government we've spoken about men women what kind of conversations are you having i guess about like kids who are might be lgbtq or non-binary adults because i think suicide rates again are tragically high there um and rates of mental illness, uh, yeah. What I guess what what's your feelings on how to help?
0: It's it's a it's a huge issue. I think mi- minority backgrounds is, is has been a really big issue. And we had um, uh, Elijah, who is I actually posted on my feed about him. He was what um, honestly was most articulate. He was eighteen, and he spoke in a way that and articulated. Uh, this conversation in a way that I don't think I'd have ever done that age, especially in the setting set in number ten, uh, and and it was exactly around the point, not just for LGBTQ plus uh, non-binary, uh, but also for those that are from uh, black, black caribbean black backgrounds, or from you know uh, Asian heritage. The conversation would be very different or difficult around, uh, around mental illness, and when I've been at universities. I've really noticed a lot of questions I get from students from those backgrounds about how do I talk to my parents? How do I actually engage people in my community about this? Uh, and I think a big part of it, again, has got to be getting leaders and people just kind of set the example from those communities. One, I went to the University of Leicester and they had someone designated from LGBTQ plus background to actually work on that community in terms of engaging them in their mental uh, health. And I think that's got to be a step forward. It kind of goes back to what I said earlier. I think we need to start on this approach of like, we'll set up store, people come. We've got to think about how to actually engage people from these communities in a way that they're comfortable, not in a way that we're comfortable. Um, but it is something that's definitely, is part of that conversation. I guess when we roll the hubs out, I, I, I think it's very important that some are very, very conscious of that we're not in a way excluding people uh, is it, vital. We want to be inclusional. But I don't think we, you know, we, I don't think we all we don't have all the answers at the moment, and it's kind of something we're all constantly learning. I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't know. What saying, but I said I'm going to do a, start a public mental health master's at King's actually from September, so I'm kind of going on to kind of develop these things myself. But one of the things I'm, that one thing I want to kind of focus on in that is particularly because I don't think many people have really thought put that much time. I might be completely wrong. But I don't think something that's really been thought about in a public health sense is about how we particularly target those groups that are hard to reach. You know, and, and I, I think that's what we need to maybe spend more time doing. It's like, well, if we if people are dying in this sector and they're not coming, and they're dying tragically before we even get a chance to speak to them or talk to them or help them, why is that the case? And how do we engage them? I think that's that's a really interesting space.
1: I'm, I'm glad what you said about as well, in terms of um, like other ethnic backgrounds, it's a conversation that we've had before as well on the podcast, you know, kind of the the, the rates with which we manage to reach black men for therapy, for instance, and it's not that, uh, you know, it's not that they don't want to go into therapy, and which is, I think, sometimes something that gets said, but it's that for whatever reason, they're not being referred or services aren't reaching them, or perhaps, like you say, we're not managing to engage people in the right way um so yeah i hope if we can get to, like what you said i think that cultural the side kids. is very
0: difficult it's very difficult because um you know and i'll tell you something we we made, made the doc, documentary our young mental health crisis uh we deliberately tried to approach groups from from from, from all sorts of backgrounds now we did have um uh, we did have a participant participant from an lgbt lgbt plus oh gosh background. um apologize uh, um but we did what we couldn't do and we really struggled to do was get someone from an ethnic minority or oh, i think we had one person actually an ethnic minority. we really struggled to get people to talk and you know we've got to look at why 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 what is it particular pressures on them not to speak about it what is it that, that makes it so difficult because that was something that really struck me and actually people said you know the show is great but the, the, show, the documentary was great but where were these voices and it's not that we didn't try we just found it so hard to get them to speak
2: and, and another group sorry to just like lambast those are different groups but another group that's a psychiatrists, you know we see more conversations about public mental health taking place but one group which seems to be left out is that kind of major mental illness group like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia and these are conditions which I think they're a lot harder to talk about i think they're the conditions where there is still quite a significant amount of of stigma and shame and they're what i've had a term i really like for these conditions is invisible illness and that's applied to conditions like schizophrenia but also things like severe emphysema you rarely see people with severe emphysema because they're at home you know and people with schizophrenia when it's severe are, are similar and i wonder if any of your work at the moment is pertaining to people with those kinds of conditions, it sounds like you're doing quite a lot. But
0: well, the honest answer is no, not not at the moment. But it, you know, and it, it's it, it's really hard because you know it, it, the role I'm in is. It, it, is a it's voluntary and b i'm i'm one person I, I do work with a huge group obviously i'm very lucky to have a huge support you know this idea that i'm somehow trying taking over the mental health ta- battle of this country is obviously absolute nonsense i would not ignorant or arrogant agnor- arrogant to think that i'm doing that but you know it, it's something that that we should be thinking about and particularly because uh, and it's exactly that point i i wonder whether a lot of it is that are we, are we ready for it? Are people uncomfortable? It, it, does it bring some discomfort? There's, I, was speaking to, um, and, and, uh, I was speaking to Andrew Goddard, who's uh, the president of the Royal College of, of Physicians. And he was very honest, actually. And I thought it was very brave and but he was very honest to say that you know, there's something within us that, you know, as medics, a lot of medics and a lot of people, well, medics alone, let alone people in society, we're very, you know, very comfortable dealing with certain things. And as medics, we're happy to see a heart attack or renal failure or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but seeing someone with a manic episode is something a lot of people are very uncomfortable with. that's as medics let alone I think in the general society so is it ne- is it an element that people are like well this is very uncomfortable and therefore I don't want to deal with it and I know I'm, I'm I'm sad to say that but I wonder if it's an element I'm not saying that's why I'm not focusing it clearly I'm, but I'm I'm really interested in particularly in this early intervention phase but is that why that there's not more work being done you know is that the reason that there hasn't been more conversation around it and and, and how do we change that, really? How do we engage, you know, more with politicians and with policymakers and and, and leaders, I guess, to make sure that we're not forgetting about these people? Because it's it's, it's completely unfair. And I, I've actually got one of my consultants at Lewisham. I mean, I stopped working at Lewisham last summer to work on, well, really, to, to kind of focus on this work. Um, but she's amazing. And she she's a consultant, an amazing person who, who has bipolar uh, disorder and is an incredible consultant despite that and, 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 and manages that condition with, 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 medication and she, she engages obviously with support services as well and when she needs, but she's so open about it. And I think a real inspiration, I think for anyone that, that is living with, with, with such an illness because she's still able to be top of top notch, uh, an amazing consultant and really successful person. So part of it is, I think we do need to make sure we we're, we're we're getting people talking who haven't, maybe getting rid of that stigma, getting people talking about it and going, actually, you're not confined to not achieving your goals just because you have this.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. And i bring bringing it back as well to ethnic minorities. We know that the ratios of individuals that are sectioned is completely off if you compare the UK population of ethnic minorities as well. Um, Alex, you're doing so much, but I'm wondering, who's looking after you? How do you manage your own mental health? Um, I've seen that you get a lot of abuse online. I know you mentioned that it's, it's got better over the years, but how do you cope? I'm, I'm quite intrigued to know what, what kind of abuse you get and how you manage that, because from our point of view, you know, you know, we're doctors, but we're lucky enough that we don't get that. Um, but how do you, how do you manage yes.
0: Um, at first, very difficult. It was very difficult. Um, I mean, I think creating boundaries is one of the most important things you can do. Uh, and I came off Twitter a long time ago because actually, Twitter is an incredibly toxic space. You know, I I really kind of found it like an un- a particularly unhelpful and not a very positive space. Not necessarily just because I was getting sick at certain times, but just because there's so much nastiness on there in general. I kind of I deleted my account. Don't want it. Um, and it, what I think in terms of, in in gen- general, and a point you said about grounding earlier, and I don't know, I hope I'm relatively grounded, but I, it's, you can't really say as yourself, can you? But I, I think it's very important to not get um, kind of caught up in the hype too much. And when I going Alex, you're fantastic or the work you're doing is amazing. You know, not get too caught up in that because actually I'm just a very normal person. I'm no different to anyone else. I'm in the position I'm in. I'll do my best, I'll get things wrong, but I'll do my best. I'm not actually an amazing person or different to anyone else. But equally, I'm not a horrendous, terrible person either. So when people are slating and going, you're awful, why are you doing this? Or, you know, uh, I think I was recently getting sick because I bought a house in Wales and my parents are living and I'm doing these cottages up and I'm getting hammered. How dare I buy a place where my family are from? You know, get laid into for that. And you think, well, actually, you know, people saying, "Oh, I'm going to come and you know, I'm going to drag you out the house. So I'm going to beat you up and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, do I really? Is that something? Is that an opinion that I really think is valid? You know, it was a really great piece of advice I was given. You know, if you wouldn't go and ask someone for their opinion and you wouldn't ask them for their advice because you want their advice, you don't respect and you respect their advice why would you take criticism from that person if you're not going to go and ask them for advice why Why are you getting taken on board criticism and it's not always easy to do that and sometimes something catches a nerve and I got a few little but at the end of the day I'm in this position I did choose this position so in terms of that point it's boundaries but looking after myself you know screen time on my phone I get out for a walk every morning you know I love getting outside exercise is huge for me I've got brilliant people around me, not just the team that work for me and work with me, but my family and my friends. And it's kind of leaning on those people, really, to get through um, uh, difficult times. You know, that's the only way, I think, to get through good times and bad times is to do it with other people. And I'd say to any medics, you know we all it, you know yeah find criticism on, online can be particularly hard because in that public space but you know medics can be very hard on each other as well bullying is still an issue in certain specialties more some more than the others and uh, you know i think it's important to say that people don't go through those things on your own you know if i have a bit of stick online one day for something i go talk to people you know and i, and I say this is what's going to i mean I drove i mean i remember one time i was actually really annoyed be it when i came into the role one of the agreements I had is I'll do this role, but I want 80 million to be put in towards mental health support teams at schools because that's a huge part of actually wraparound sport at schools. It's, a green, it's something that was on the green paper already. They're very slow at rolling it out. I was like, put 80 million on and, and and I'll come into that role. And I thought that's quite a lot of money. I mean, maybe I'm you not know, in the grand scheme. Is nothing. I was quite proud of that. But then you had people going, why did you only get 80 million? Should have got at least 200 million. And you think, well, geez, mate, come on. And you go, but you've got to laugh. and go, I laugh. It's like, I got to laugh. I think, you know, you know, how much you go to, how, what was your contribution? What do you do today for someone else? And that's, what you, got, you don't say to them that, but you've got to think that because otherwise you go and say, you know, not to use the words badly, but you literally, you know, it would drive you crazy in that sense, you know, and you, you've got to kind of go stop and go, actually, I get up each morning. I am far from perfect, but I'll do my best. And I think it's almost that element of gratitude. You know, I'm grateful for my life. I'm grateful for things I'm good at. I'm grateful for the failures I've had because I learned from them. And I'll do my best each day. And if you kind of get up each day with that view, you don't expect yourself to be perfect. You judge people less harshly, harshly around you. And you also let criticism you know, kind of brush off more easily.
2: I think people who look at people who are in the spotlight and so are very successful and there's this illusion that they're cut from a different cloth and as you said we're all just kind of pretty flawed doing our best and some are just managing to make progress and, and make contributions you know and I, I think one thing we have to get away like this is another this is like psychotherapy 101 is get away from perfectionism or denigration mm. this false uh, dichotomy that you're either amazing or you're like the lowest piece of shit on the planet you know and yeah, literally. One, like one one thing I um do with myself, but I also talk to clients about learn to develop a relationship with yourself as if you were just your own friend. Like often if you the way you would treat your friend is actually a lot less harsh than we unconsciously treat ourselves. Think okay, if my friend came to me with this particular set of difficulties, like I had a bad day at work or I got shouted at by my consultant or something like that, how would I treat my friend? versus how do i treat myself and the weird thing about self-critical thoughts is they're often out of awareness like they fly by and you just feel that residual shame and guilt it kind of goes back to what we're talking about developing self-awareness you start to realize that's that's the the weird thing i've discovered is you're not kind of one entity you're in a relationship with yourself and you need to be cool to yourself (laughs) And, it's yeah. a kind of, I
0: mean, Eck, Eckhart Toll. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very spiritual book, but the power of now is in that premise as well, isn't it? Kind of thinking about self-awareness, being in and out, but also just, you know, judging yourself a little bit less harshly. I mean, I, the thing I do as well is if I'm really laying into myself, I say, what is the evidence for that? Almost like, almost like medic, would. what is the evidence for what you're saying? You know, just saying, Alex, you're an idiot. You really, you know, you're a bad person. You're, what is the evidence? What is the evidence for it? What's the evidence against it? If you're really in the mix of it, write it down. And often then you go, actually, I'm not good or bad. I'm actually just, you know, a normal person doing my best. And you, that, that often really helps me. And, and if, for example, when people, you know, laying in, but like, why the hell, you know, at the start, there's a lot of people, why the hell are you, you're coming to this role? Like, what the hell are you doing? And I wrote it all down. I feel good about it. But yeah, I'm not a psychiatrist expert thing, but, you know, I do, I've been through quite a bit. I've got lived experience. I'm going to do my best. I'll get other people to help me. I know my shortcomings. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert and all this stuff. Uh, And Above everything, I'm probably doing much more than than a lot of these people are criticizing me, you know, because a lot of people are doing, I always find it fascinating. There's another piece of something. I I hear this actually online. Those who do the most uh, drag people down the least. Uh, And it's that idea that often, and it's often that, that really clever consultant that's really good at his job is really kind, is don't call me doctor, I'm this. And you know, really, really nice to be around them. You notice you know, they're not trying to be someone, they're just doing the job and they're passionate and they're good at it and they're comfortable in who they are. They're not dragging people down. You know, often it's the people who are not comfortable in them, their own skin. They feel jealousy because they feel they're underachieving. They're actually hammering themselves and taking it out on you. And I think it's always worth remembering a lot of hatred in life comes from a space of someone else's discomfort. It's a minority in their discomfort, you know, and that, and that you can't let that infect yourself. And I think also vice versa, if you find yourself angry or jealous or hatred, hateful of other people, you're just performing self-harm. The only person that's losing is you. If you're hating someone else, you're losing. They're carrying on their day. They're, they're living their life. You're damaging yourself. And I think that I would give that for, as a strong piece of advice to anyone. You know, if you'll find yourself sat there angry as we all do we all every to to be humans to be jealous we all suffer from jealousy recognizing that again self-awareness when that happens and learning that that all you're doing is damaging yourself and ask yourself that question you know what am i doing sat here thinking about that you know get outside get moving and let those thoughts go
2: yeah it's i see it as a mental prison and some people spend their whole lives in that mental prison and i experience that myself i can have states of consciousness where i feel so generous compassionate you know all the things you'd want to be and some days where you're just the opposite and that's that's okay of course because like you said it's kind of the spectrum of human experience but it's so important to recognize it and then think you know how do i spend the least amount of time in that second position and the most amount of time in that first position um i'm not sure i'm not sure how you are for for time but one one final question I had was um, if you had to talk to your your pre-famous self for five minutes and give him some advice, you know, what kind of advice do you think you'd give him?
0: I'd give him a, a, regardless of, of being famous or not. I think it's I am who I am. I don't think I'd like to think I've never changed. That experiences have changed me, but not necessarily fame itself. But I would say like you know, be kind to yourself. Judge less half ha, less harshly. Um, Stop worrying about the future so much. You know the the, the thing that I've realised is the thing that you worry about the most is not the thing that will come and bite you in the ass. It's a, it'll be on a Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock when you're not worrying about anything in the world. You get a phone call and it will change your life. And that's how it happened to me. I worry all my life about exams, about my career. What do people think? What about this? What about what you know? What if I end up bankrupt? What about this and that and the other? Right. The thing that you don't worry about is the thing that will change everything. And I can tell you that from my own experience. Stop worrying about things you cannot control. Control what's in the sphere of influence. Let the rest just fly. See what happens. And and fearless, because one day, and again, there's another point why it's very important to be rain grounded we all come into the world in a very similar way with a few, with a few slight uh, differences and we all leave the world in pretty much similar ways as well. So, you know, live your life. You don't know how much time you've got and just enjoy it. Enjoy it as much as you can. Even the, even the bad times, enjoy it.
1: You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or give us a rating. It really does help people to find us. If you find the podcast valuable, why not buy us a coffee to help keep us going? There's a link in the show notes. As ever, we love to hear from you and love to hear what you think. So drop us an email or get in touch on social media. Thank you so much.